0: Hey guys, it's Ellie, and this is Classic Mysteries, and I am so sorry for not posting for, like, a month. Um, so, yeah, I graduated high school, like, a month ago, and (laughs) right after I graduated, I went on a vacation, and then right after my vacation, I started working full-time, like, eight hours a day, five days a week. And, obviously, I'm not used to that, and so it was a big change, and so I've... (laughs) I've been really busy working, and it's been hard to find a time to record, so... I probably won't be able to get episodes out as often as I want to, just because of my job and how busy I am every day. But I still like, I still want to do this podcast, and the podcast is not going away. Um, however, today I don't have time to record a full regular episode, so I'm just going to do a Minute Mysteries. Um, <laughs> so, yeah. But also, if you've never listened to one of my Minute Mysteries episodes, let me just explain how it works real quick. So, in my hands, I have a book called Minute Mysteries. It's by H.A. Ripley, and I believe it's linked in the show notes. And it's basically just Minute Mystery puzzles. If you don't know what that is, it's basically just logic puzzles that kind of test your deductive logical thinking skills. They're usually like scenarios where you need to find a uh, contradiction in a story or something. It's They're really fun, and I've really had a lot of fun doing them. And um, yeah, I haven't done them in a while, so I'm kind of excited. So each episode, I do three puzzles, and after I read each one, I kind of think out loud, and I try to solve it as best as I can. And as soon as I'm either out of ideas or I have a solution that I think is actually the right one, then we'll read the solution together and we'll, <laughs> and we'll see how much I failed because, oh my goodness, these puzzles are really difficult sometimes. I think last time I did one of these episodes, I got one right out of three, but I'm not sure. So yeah, as long as we get one right, I'll be happy. <laughs> With no more waffle, let's jump right in. Who is the heir?" As the Isle de France slipped from her berth, Europe-bound, John Morgan, the brother of New York's largest theatrical producer, waved goodbye to his family on the dock, said Professor Fortney. Arriving in Paris a week later, he registered at the Hotel Crayon. At two o'clock next morning, he called the office and demanded he be given another suite immediately, saying he didn't like the view from his present rooms. This, despite the fact that he had occupied, in fact, insisted upon, this suite many times in the past. Because of his prominence and wealth, he was accommodated at once. Moving on to Berlin four days later, he registered at the Hotel Adlon. The manager, anxious to please a brother of the internationally known producer, greeted him personally. He afterward remarked how worried Mr. Morgan appeared at the time. At two o'clock in the morning, a repetition of the Paris occurrence took place. From Berlin, he went in turn to London, Copenhagen, Brussels, Vienna, Bucharest, and Sofia spending exactly four days in each place. He then went to Tehran, Persia. He explained to the American consul there that he had come to Persia to sample at first hand the celebrated wines of Shiraz, and also to continue his search for the one Mirasvari, a mystic he had met in New York and for whom he had sought vainly all over Europe. On the fourth day in Tehran, he was found dead of an overdose of hashish in a squalid house in an unsavory quarter. Receiving news of his death, his attorney in New York, acting on previous instructions, opened his will, in which he had left his entire fortune of five million dollars to the producer. But, strange as it may seem, it was found John Morgan never had a brother. What a situation. Under the circumstances and according to the law, who received the huge fortune? Smiled Fordney to his dinner guests. Oh, so like someone travels the world and then dies and his heir doesn't exist. (laughs) Weird. Okay, I mean, why would he leave his money to someone who doesn't exist? Like he left it to his brother, but he doesn't have a brother. Was he lied to? Did he think he had a brother? Is that what we're getting here? Okay, so John Morgan is apparently the brother of New York's largest theatrical producer, but apparently this John Morgan fellow doesn't have a brother and therefore he's not famous. Because he was only famous by association to his brother. Was he lying or was he lied to? So my only question is, is this a case of identity theft? Did the theatrical producer that was famous actually have a brother named John Morgan? And then this mysterious character decided to steal the identity of this producer's brother and like call himself John Morgan and like get all these fake IDs and stuff like that? I'm thinking that this is identity theft because like I don't think there's really any other option here. So yeah, so the question isn't who is this man and how does he not have a brother? The question is who received John Morgan's huge fortune? And this is like according to the law. So like legally, who would get the fortune? And it says that John Morgan, whatever his real name is, if his name is even John Morgan, I don't know, had a very famous brother. And considering that everyone around the world that he met with seemed to know who this famous theater producer was, like for example, in Berlin. It says that, quote, The manager, anxious to please a brother of the internationally known producer, greeted him personally. And so, people internationally know the name of this theatrical producer. And so that means that this producer really does exist, as far as I can tell. Like, I don't think some random dude in Berlin would believe you if you walked up to him and just said, Hey, I'm a theatrical producer in New York, you know? (laughs) So I can believe that this mysterious theatrical producer really does exist. And so it says that um, John Morgan gave the money to his brother and said that his brother was this famous theatrical producer. And so I think the theatrical producer is going to get the money. Because my thinking is that John Morgan is, like, stealing the identity of the actual brother of this theatrical producer. And so my thing is that this producer does actually exist. And if John Morgan says that this producer is his brother and he's giving the money to his brother then the theatrical producer is going to get it, whether or not he actually is his brother or not. That's what I'm thinking. I don't know if I'm making any sense, but, like, this is weird. (laughs) All right, let's look at the solution. John Morgan's sister, of course. Oh, no. Oh, you did me dirty. (laughs) Oh, man. Yeah, I guess it doesn't specifically say it. Oh, man. See, I assumed because, like, the way that it's worded, It technically doesn't say it, but it almost says that the producer and this John Morgan fellow are brothers, which means they're both dudes. But it only says that John Morgan is the producer's brother, which means that the other one isn't necessarily a dude. So, oh man, that's really cleverly worded. (laughs) Because I assumed that what they meant was they were brothers, which means, again, like, they're both dudes. But no, it's just really cleverly worded. It kind of dances around... Referring to the actual gender of the producer, which is a genius, because I fell right into their trap. Oh my gosh. Okay, okay, that was actually really clever. (laughs) Oh man, I feel stupid, but like, that was a good puzzle. Okay, moving on to the second puzzle. The Professor Stops a Blunder At four o'clock Thursday afternoon, Louis Mundy unexpectedly received a telegram requesting him to return home immediately as his brother was ill. At 8 that evening, he alighted from the plane in Washington. He had not been in the city during the past two months. Hurrying to his suburban home, he found his brother greatly improved. At 10 o'clock, he set out on a hike through the country, returning at midnight. These facts were all verified. Between 11 and 12 o'clock that night, John Skidder was murdered, and the only thing missing from his house was a note for $10,000 signed by Mundy. Skitter's secretary said the note was habitually kept at the office, and that she was very surprised when he took it home that evening. Mundy declared he saw or passed no one on his hike, but under severe questioning, admitted having been near Skidder's house shortly after 11 o'clock. A thorough investigation revealed that Skitter had no known enemies, and no one other than Mundy had the slightest reason for wishing him dead. Mundy was consequently arrested, as he knew Skidder lived with only an old man servant, who was out until after 12 that night. The police believed he had gone unobserved to the house, demanded the note, and, when refused, had murdered Skidder. No one but Mundy could possibly profit by the disappearance of the note. As it was due in 10 days and he was in no position to meet it, they anticipated little difficulty in obtaining a conviction due to the strong motive and weak alibi. Asked his opinion, Professor Fordney surprisingly said he didn't believe any American jury would convict Mundy. He was right. Now, don't argue. There's only one answer. Figure it out. Hmm. Thanks. (laughs) Okay. Whew. We are back to the traditional alibis where, you know, we need to find a hole in the story or somewhere. We need to find a contradiction. These are like my favorite kind of puzzles. That doesn't mean I'm good at these, but they are my favorite kind of puzzles. I love these. Okay. So let's kind of re-summarize what I just read to kind of get all the facts straight in our minds. So four o'clock thursday mr mundy received a telegram telling him to go home because his brother was sick so at eight that evening he got off a plane so (laughs) it took him four hours to book a plane get on and then get off arriving in washington so he's now in washington he hadn't been in the city so i don't know if it means washington dc or just somewhere in the state of washington Uh, but he hadn't been in the city for the past two months and so he went to his suburban home and he saw his brother was doing pretty well. And then 10 o'clock, so two hours after he got off the flight, he went out on a hike in the country. And he got back two hours later at midnight. And then, between 11 and 12 o'clock that night, John Skidder, who apparently Mundy was a dead or two, uh, died. And as we all know, Mundy was out on a mysterious country hike from 10 to midnight that night. And Skidder was believed to have died from 11 to midnight that night. And so, obviously, the stories seem, on the surface, to line up perfectly. However, as we will soon hopefully see, that is not the case, because Fordney doesn't believe that he was actually the murderer. So, we need to prove that somehow, basically. So, one strange thing already is that, first of all, nothing from John Skidder's house was taken besides that one $10,000 note that Mundy would apparently have wanted. But that $10,000 note wouldn't usually be at skitter's house in the first place skitter for some reason took it home that night and his secretary was surprised and so i'm already getting kind of suspicious of the secretary because the secretary knows where that note is now but whatever that's beside the point so that's already strange that he brought it home for seemingly no reason and so apparently mundy who had been on the hike as we know was apparently near skitter's house right after 11 o'clock which does not help his case in the slightest. It just means that he was closer to the scene of the crime during the crime. So that's not looking good for him. <laughs> and apparently, Skidder had no known enemies, and nobody other than Mundy wanted him dead for any reason. Let's see, Mundy was arrested partially because, you know, all the other reasons before, but also because he knew that Skidder lived only with an old manservant. And, you know, he was out until after midnight for some reason. <laughs> So my only question is, if Mundy was apparently like out of state or out of town for the past two months, because remember at the very beginning, it says that he had to take a plane to get to where his brother was. So if Mundy had been out of town for the last two months, why does he know exactly who Skidder lives with? Like, how does he know that he only has one manservant still? Maybe he had one manservant when he left, but he could have gotten more. He could have fired some. I don't know. So, that's one weird thing. Like, how could Mundy know if he didn't live near Skidder for the past two months? But yeah, so after going over all those facts, I can't see any holes? Like, apparently, according to Fordney, there is no evidence that he actually did it. Because, yeah, like, all the evidence is really, um, circumstantial. There's no hard evidence that he did it. But, like, the circumstantial evidence is very strong with this one. (laughs) I mean... I guess the jury shouldn't convict Mundy because it's just circumstantial evidence and there isn't any hard facts that places him at the scene of the crime. But all we have is circumstantial evidence. And so maybe that's the reason why a jury wouldn't convict him, because there's no hard facts. But I'm thinking that there's got to be something more solid. There's got to be a much stronger contradiction in the story somewhere that I'm missing. Because that's usually how these things work. (laughs) So, oh man. How did Louis Mundy get into John Skidder's house? How did he know that he was going to be home? How did he know that the manservant wasn't going to be home? Like, how did he know all these things? That's my question. Like, he hasn't been in town for the past two months. He shouldn't know anything about what John Skidder's life is like, unless they've been uh, corresponding via large amounts of telegrams and or letters for the past two months, which I don't think uh, is happening. I mean, even though the point of this puzzle isn't to find a suspect, I still think that it was the secretary. Because the secretary is the only other person that seems to know about this $10,000 IOU note that Mundy has. Um, with Skitter, and so I think that the secretary, I don't know why, but like, the secretary knows about it, and that's the only other character that we've, like, met. Anyways, so that's beside the point. But yeah, I'm kind of stumped, but let's read the solution and find out if I was right or not. Mundy had been unexpectedly called to Washington. Skitter's secretary said the note was habitually kept at the office. Mundy, therefore, could not possibly have known of Skitter's intention of taking it home. That was exactly the weakness in the case of the police. Despite the damning circumstantial evidence, motive could not be proved unless it could be shown that Mundy knew the note would be at Skitter's house. I think I got it. (laughs) Because I mentioned that, like, Mundy shouldn't know anything about, like, what Skitter's life is like, and that includes, like, where the note is, because he hasn't been in town for the past two months. And also it mentions that there is damning circumstantial evidence, but nothing else. Like, it's all circumstantial. That hit kind of two points that I made. And so I am going to give myself a point for that, because that was pretty cool. (laughs) So, I got at least one right, let's see if we can get the second one right. So, let's move on to the third and final puzzle for today. The Perfect Crime Peter Johannes had one burning ambition, to commit a perfect crime. After much thinking and careful planning, he chose burglary for his experiment, and a large brownstone mansion for the scene of his action. Learning its occupants had left town, he arrayed himself in a business suit of conservative cut, flung a light topcoat over his arm, picked up a Gladstone bag, covered with foreign labels, and set out. He had ascertained, of course, when the policeman patrolling that beat was farthest away. At such a time, he drove up in his swanky sport roadster, swung jauntily to the sidewalk, skipped up the steps, and fitted a skeleton key into the lock, which he yielded easily. So far, so good, he thought. Inside, he adjusted a black mask to his eyes and silk gloves to his hands. The former, for a bit of local color, he couldn't resist. (laughs) The latter, for more practical purposes. What a jolly thing this burglaring was. He quickly filled his gladstone with silver and other valuables. Hurrying out, he removed his gloves after closing the door. Done, and not a single clue left, he said to himself. As he was about to descend the steps, he saw out of the corner of his eye the policeman rounding the corner. Feigning disinterest, he quickly pushed the bell button and stood there whistling. "'Hey, you!' shouted the policeman, now standing at the bottom of the steps. "'What are you doing there? Them people ain't home!' "'Howdy, officer. How goes it?' said our hero blithely as he turned to greet the blue coat. "'I know they're not home. Been trying to raise someone for five minutes. Annoying, too, after running out to see them. "'Oh, well,' he continued. "'I'll be going along,' as he unconcernedly picked up his bag." You bet you will. Right to Huskow, bellowed the guardian of the peace. Your story, I might have believed, but come on now, I'm taking you down. Alas for the perfect crime, what caused our hero's arrest? Asked Professor Forney of his class. Ooh, so immediately what I thought was the mask. Like, did he take the mask off? Let me double check. Yeah, he didn't take his mask off. (laughs) Here, it says, quote, Inside, he adjusted a black mask to his eyes and silk gloves to his hands. So he has a black mask on and gloves on, right? And then after he fills up his bag with valuables, he leaves. And it says that he removes his gloves after closing the door. But it does not say that he took the mask off. So he's standing there, like, with a black mask over his eyes, just hanging out in front of a big swanky mansion. I mean, come on. How suspicious is that? This guy... Is just chilling outside in front of a mansion with a black mask on. Like, he may look rich. He said he put on like a swanky suit and has like a really expensive car and bag. Probably so he can fit in with the neighborhood and didn't look so suspicious. Like a homeless guy walking around the streets or something. Uh, Which I understand. But the black mask is doing no favors for you, my good sir. (laughs) Oh, dude, I think I got that. Oh my goodness. Okay, let's read the solution and find out because I'm very confident in this answer. Alas, Peter Johannes had forgotten to remove his mask on leaving the house. Woo! I got it! (laughs) Oh, that's hilarious. Yeah, see, I'm telling you, some of these puzzles are really easy for me, and some are really difficult. Sometimes I just get the solution right away, like this one, and some of them are, like, impossible, and I never get, like the first one. The first one, I just didn't understand, and I just, like, thought, and and I, like, was thinking, and I was, like, trying my hardest to, like, use my brain, and I failed. But then this one, I was just kind of like, oh, I just forgot to take the mask off. Like, that's obvious. (laughs) That one was just a little bit easier, but sometimes there are some random ones that just give me a lot of trouble for no reason. Anyways, that was a really fun episode. And again, I'm so sorry for not posting for so long. Um, I hope that I'll be able to get into a bit more of a schedule after this and I'll be able to post more frequently, (laughs) more frequently than like once a month. I want to do it at least weekly again, but we'll see how that goes. Um, but yeah, so, anyways, this was a really fun episode, and I'm glad that I'm able to record again, and so, yeah, I just have a couple of things to say. First of all, thank you so much for listening, and I really appreciate you guys tuning into my podcast. This is just a bit of a passion project for me, and I think it's really fun that people are actually listening to it, and so if you're on any podcast app or website or other service or whatever, be sure to, like, engage with the podcast, like, leave a review, leave a star rating, like, <laughs> like it, comment, whatever, I'd really appreciate anything that you can do. And secondly... If you've never listened to this podcast before, then first of all, welcome. I hope you stick around. And second of all, um, you might be confused because this is a Minute Mysteries episode, even though the feed you're on is called Classic Mysteries. And that's because this series is a bit of like a sub-series that I enjoy doing. My usual schedule is to release these episodes on Thursdays and uh, my usual episodes on Mondays. And this is just kind of like a mini episode that I do. Um, You know, it's not super high effort for me, so it's just kind of fun. And um, But my regular episodes I release on Mondays, and the gist of those is that I just read an old mystery novel out loud to you, And then I just comment on it as I go. And I make jokes and stuff. Like I'm reading stories that I've never read before. And so you're just kind of getting my first comments and my first reactions to what I'm reading. And it's a really fun series. And I'd hope that you would listen to some of those um, because they're a lot of fun. Like they're really fun stories. Uh, For example, one of my favorite stories that I've ever read was called uh, Lost in Blackie. It was like a whole dang novel. Like usually I do short stories, but every once in a while I do a whole novel, which takes a few months. But this novel, was buck wild <laughs> so boston blackie isn't strictly a mystery book but it's close enough like it's kind of, like the main character is a bit of like a robin hood character he's like a quote-unquote gentleman thief or whatever but dude oh my goodness this book the boston Blackie, it's ridiculous it may start out boring but like as you go on and as you listen to more episodes it just gets more and more insane and uh, anyways <laughs> it's a lot of fun so uh yeah I'll see you guys next time. I hope that I'm able to record again soon and release another episode soon. But like I said, my schedule is kind of all over the place at the moment. So we'll see when I actually record. But regardless, I hope that you have a wonderful day and a wonderful week because I definitely have. And uh, yeah, I'll see you guys next time. Peace.